0: This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. Now we often may not realize it, but that embedded in our scientific worldview are a lot of mysteries, a lot of unsolved problems. We have the something from nothing problem, which remains paramount. We have the fine-tuning problem, which is attracting a lot of attention. And we have this other problem called the action at a distance or spooky action at a distance, which has also gotten an increasing amount of attention from folks in a broad area. I I have on my desk here a copy of Dean Radin's book called Entangled Minds where Dean Radin, noted parapsychologist-researcher, uses the quantum entanglement as a potential basis to explain parapsychology. But this notion of action at a distance really permeates science and maybe all the way back to Newton, uh, the difficulty of explaining how gravity actually works. It's one thing modeling uh, the force of gravity and calculating the uh the the uh, power or the attractive force of of heavenly bodies it's, it's another thing explaining how exactly this force works. We have the horizon problem the smoothness problem we have bell's theorem we have all these all these issues revolving around this topic of non locality and how things in the world actually interact with with each other across space faster than the speed of light and and really um this area is generating a lot of a lot of interest a lot of good ideas and i'm i'm happy to have on my show today george musser who's written a great book entitled spooky action at a distance where he really delves into this uh area and i'm happy to uh have a show focused on this now george is an award-winning journalist he's a contributing editor for Scientific American and author of yes the complete idiot's guide to string theory a book we should all read. He's the recipient of a John uh, a Jonathan Everhart Planetary Sciences Journalism Award from the American Astronomical Society and the 2011 American Institute of Physics Science Communication Award for science writing which goes to show what a great writer he is. He he has also appeared on Today Show, CNN, NPR, BBC, and other media outlets. He lives in Glenridge, New Jersey, with his wife and daughter. Daughter George, welcome to the show. I appreciate your being with us today.
1: I'm just delighted to be here. It's such a great topic to talk about and ties into all these big questions that interest you.
0: Yeah, well, I, I'm... Uh, as I, I was, as we were chatting just before the show, there's a lot to this topic, and you know, it's just like anything else, you've got to sell books too. Um, there's mm-hmm. nothing, there's nothing like a uh, work of genius that that people don't buy, and I think this notion of spooky action at a distance uh, attracts people. But let's let's start from the top here a little bit. First of all, sure. Uh, what Got you interested in this topic of action at a distance or spooky action at a distance?
1: well, I mean, as you indicated it's an inherently mysterious and interesting topic that really burrows into our our understanding of the natural world and our own place within it. But the specific story that i the specific story that I tell and the way that I feel I got into it is that I had heard about quantum entanglement and the and the mysteries that it poses years ago really as a graduate student. So this would have been in 1990, 1991, that, that period. And it was a period where it was still kind of foreboding within within physics to really talk about it or think about it. There were a few people who were doing so but it, it certainly was kind of an underground movement at, at, at the most. So I had learned about it and was interested in it but really didn't know what to do with the idea, I read a couple books on it, and then and that was that. So some years later, and this is really when I was out of graduate school and into my career as a science journalist, I began hearing more and more ab- about this. So first of all, it came up in quantum physics, quantum entanglement was being used in quantum cryptography, quantum computing, so it, it certainly seemed to have technological applications so that that was interesting. But then I also, and this is what maybe would really spark my interest, I began hearing about nonlocality in other domains of, of physics. So it came up in gravity theory. It came up in the search for a, a unified theory, Einstein's great dream, that people were trying to finally uh, bring to fruition, and uh, even in statistical mechanics. So it seemed to be coming up in different areas, the same idea of non-locality, and I, I think this is this general rule in life that when you begin getting something from different directions, you begin hearing it from different people, and those people maybe not have even known each other, so independently from different people, it, it gives more credence to an idea, so that's kind of what got me interested in it, and I tried in the book and in the project generally to synthesize all those different strands that seem to be coming together.
0: Yeah. Now let's let's uh, set the the table a, a little bit more here because there might be some folks out there who have heard of spooky action at a distance. It, you know, it's sort of it, it's right up there with uh, God does not play dice as being a um, yep. one of the Einstein uh, quotes that is probably misquoted or misused a lot, but let's let's try to um, explain a little bit about maybe the spooky part of it let's let's focus why don't you give your own take on why some people and I think I, I guess Einstein did use the word spooky, but what makes it spooky?
1: Yeah, so as you had said at the at the outset, action at a distance or even leaving off the word spooky for the right. for the moment is an idea that goes back actually even before Newton. I mean, this is really something that's very deep in the Western intellectual tradition, going all the way back to Parmenides and the and the, the dawn of uh, Greek philosophy. You also see a, a parallel strand in on in the East in Chinese uh, metaphysics, but I'll concentrate on the Western tradition because that's the one I'm most familiar with. So the idea is, in action at a distance, you can have uh, two objects that are separated—they're at a distance—they're they're not in contact with one another—and yet they're able to interact in some way. They are able to influence one another. It's uh, there doesn't seem to be any kind of mechanism conveying the influence across space, and yet those two things can can affect one another. To touch one is to is to touch the other, and this happens in different ways. There's different ways that they could. Uh, affect one another or have an influence on one another and As, as you point out the, the the one that people have concentrated on historically is in gravity So suppose I lift my arm So I slightly change the gravitational field of the earth when I do so Or just to take maybe a less contrived example when the oceans move around the atmosphere moves around when there's a redistribution of mass within the earth's interior it changes the gravitational field that our planet produces. And according to Newton's theory, that change is instantaneously communicated to the satellites in orbit, to the moon, to the sun, to all the celestial bodies. If you actually look at the equations of gravity, if you change the little m that represents mass, or you change the little r that represents distance between objects, the force of gravity Instantaneously changes, and it does so everywhere in the entire universe. That's the action at a distance.
0: And now, it, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say that this is something that you know. There, there's a there's a frame a phrase in your book where you talk about um, when when incomprehensible ideas become part of our language, we 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 sort of accept it as a given and don't question it. And and gravity is is really is really a mystery because of what you just said. I mean, all the all the heavenly bodies, the stars, the planets, solar, so everything out there is is in is held in place theoretically by the force of gravity. And but what is what is that what is that conveyor of the force? And you know, and and I want you to continue here. But it just struck me that. You know, science has this theoretical particle called the graviton, uh, which which is sort of, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, which is sort of like this theoretical little thing that bounces back and forth between between bodies. I mean, um, it, it really it really is uh, a a feature, I think, of of the perspective we have in this particle world. Where we need to see little billiard balls bouncing all over the place, you know, holding things together, and if we don't see those billiard balls or those particles, virtual particles, whatever they are, then it becomes spooky. Then something it becomes mysterious. So I, I just wanted to add in about you know we accept we accept gravity. Like I mean, I tell people that uh, if a if a new theory uh, comes out, if some kind of new say holistic. Uh, spiritual, whatever you want to call it, uh, it's got to really have the same force or the same authenticity as gravity. I mean, people have to accept it as a law. Um, but some, so somehow we've accepted gravity as this law when the mechanism remains a mystery, at least. Which, so I think this is, I think it's just a remarkable uh, feature of our of our worldview right now. But anyways, I interrupted you, but I, I wanted to add in that graviton point. So no I
1: think you're exactly you're absolutely right in the why gravity poses this this conundrum this and it's why it seems so so very mysterious it because and I'll come back to the graviton in, in, in a little bit um, but it, it, it goes against our our intuitions and it, it seems mysterious precisely because it doesn't seem to be any kind of clockwork any kind of mechanism with billiard balls or some kind of model of that sort to produce the gravity and this I should say was a matter of deep concern to Newton himself to Leibniz to the contemporaries Hobbes and others of his of his day that gravity seemed to act at a distance and 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 how could it do that because it went against a a a strand again going all the way back to to the Greeks and in particular to the Greek atomists they developed an idea of and the idea of locality goes back to them the idea that things act locally on one another and that have positions and act spatially they came up with this idea of contact action so for anything to affect something else it had to make contact with it right and so if i want to pick up the book on my desk i need to go over and i need to actually lift it with my hand it just it won't levitate on its own and anything that seems on the face of it to violate that principle Would could actually be traced back to the principle. So, for instance, I might be able to. Well, I mean, when I'm talking, I'm affecting the the speaker in my computer and in my phone, across a distance, across a gap between my mouth and and that and that device. But of course, there's sound waves that are communicated uh, through the through the medium and in between them. So, and the sound waves represent a type of contact action. So, every time we think we see a violation of contact action in nature, we ultimately look more closely and we see, no, there are some intermediary particles or waves that do that communication. And that was the case with with gravity as well. Leibniz, Newton, and the others thought there must be a contact action explanation for gravity, but they couldn't think of one. And this was actually an important and probably not well understood by most people, innovation in in the history of science. Newton said, hey, let's just accept provisionally my theory of gravity. Probably there's a contact action explanation for it. We don't know what that is, but that doesn't prevent us from using the laws of gravity that I've developed. So basically he said, let's put aside our ignorance. Let's live with our ignorance. And this is something that's very hard for us human beings to do, is to just admit that we don't know something, and that we just kind of have to be cool with that and and live with it. And later, maybe we'll we'll find an explanation for it. But in the meantime, we just have to we have to chill. We have to just accept that we don't know it all. And that was certainly the case with with gravity. So for centuries, so if this is going from you know the late seventeenth century up until the time of Einstein, people didn't know what to make of this force of gravity. It seemed very peculiar. And this is really what we celebrated the centenary of last year, was Einstein's explanation, finally, for gravity, his general theory of relativity. And this is, again, part of kind of Einstein had a program, going back to his earlier work on relativity theory, of finding local explanations for this apparent non-locality. So, in this case, finding some kind of contact action explanation for the apparent action at a distance that gravity represented yeah. and and in fact this was nice confirmed last fall with the first direct detection of gravitational waves gravitational waves are what communicate gravity from one place to another yeah you know let those me, waves yeah. yeah let me sorry. Let, yeah let yeah,
0: yeah, yeah i'm sorry go ahead
1: i just want to cir- circle back to the graviton okay. and then we can okay, continue cool. so those waves when dis- when Explained or when described, I should say, in a quantum context, quantum mechanical context, are composed of gravitons. So that's where you get your graviton in there. Is that is a type of or a, a smallest possible unit of these gravitational waves?
0: Yeah, I think that uh, you know, in in the history of science, uh, it's, it's it's. I mean, Newton's story is remarkable in and of itself. Oh, yeah. where where he he had more writings on theology and spirit and 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 uh god and all that um than he did on science but you know i i, I tend and i don 't know whether it's true or not you're you're more of a historian of science than i am, but it seems as if over time since newton we, we became more particle oriented more mechanical oriented uh, and then the quantum revolution occurred, and we're still trying to figure out uh, how the scientific picture changes with quantum reality being added to the picture. The, the reason I raise this is because, you know, in Newton's time, I wouldn't be surprised if he he just uh, ascribed this mysterious force of gravity to... To spirits or to god or to whatever i mean he it didn't really i don't i don't know if it really bothered him because he he was a a um mystic in many ways Uh, over time it seems uh the importance of finding local action or local sources for forces seems to have been picked up uh Accelerated, and I would say mostly because of Einstein, because Einstein was so insistent uh, on locality. Uh, that's that's my read of it. I mean, I I think that, and and I I think frankly, George, uh, Einstein is cast a, such a long shadow that we're trying to reconcile his his ideas, his opinions, with a lot of. The results we 're getting from such things as the horizon problem uh, so so or or the inflationary big bang you know those, those mm-hmm. are those are two two examples of uh, that pose conundrums but what do you what, what do you okay so and, and i and I would add about you know i 'm not sure and i 've never i 've never really known the answer to this question but okay so general theory of relativity which is einstein 's um, Theory about space being curved, as opposed to gravity acting at a distance, uh, does does that do away with the gravity action at a distance problem?
1: Yeah, I think this you raised a lot of interesting points here. Yeah, I know. So let me um, let's come back to gravity in just a moment. I okay. just want to comment on the the figures, the historical you know personalities of Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein. Because I th- I think they're very it's very instructive to 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 think about the to think about them especially in the, when we're trying to understand these big mysteries. Both of them were very complex men, and you know, great thinkers are. I mean, all humans are certainly, but certainly these great thinkers. So Newton combined in his person both a mechanical, a mechanistic worldview and a more holistic, spiritual worldview, and they were integral both were important to the discoveries that he made, so he was he, he he thought that the world consisted of particles and the particles interacted through some kind of contact action, in other words a standard mechanistic view of the clockwork universe but he also thought that the universe was animated by he called it a subtle spirit uh, it was presumably in his mind connected with his ideas of God but it may not translate directly into a kind of a personal God, as, as many people would have. It's maybe a more a, a deistic view. And our notions of forces, I mean, these commonplace ideas that we have in physics, they of force, gravity, they come from that spiritual side of Newton's work. Yeah. And it can be traced, and, and I do this in the book, that you can trace it back to a more magical worldview that came really out of Alexandria and the, and the religions that developed there in the first few centuries AD. So Newton was very much heir to that tradition, a a more holistic view of nature, and he combined them and created what we what we call modern science. And often science is thought of as as denying that kind of view or you know very reductionist, but I think it, it marries those 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 earlier traditions. And so we come to Einstein as well. I mean Einstein is as you say Often thought of as the the quintessential mechanist, he was trying to explain the world in this in this clockwork universe view. But he also was a deeply spiritual person. Again, not easily categorized in in terms of uh, organized religion, but had a, a spiritual worldview that was also extremely important to his his conception of, of the world. And and again, married those traditions together. So I think we we have a tendency. To dichotomize, to set things in opposition, and I, I think that both Einstein and, and Newton show that no, actually, some of the greatest advances we make in our in our thought come from really combining them.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a that's a very a very good observation. I think you're exactly right because, you know, uh, Einstein himself at one point uh said you know when he, when he was asked when he was asked about his his religious beliefs or whatever i uh, he said something that he he tended towards uh spinoza's pantheism you know and and spinoza uh, is is credited or or um sort of thought of as being a pantheist i e nature is god and i often think that underlying Uh, modern science as mechanistic as mechanistic or as materialistic as it sometimes appears to be there is still this pantheism there is there is still this um this idea that the laws of nature are god and and there's plenty of books on this on uh, that basically say that i mean even stephen hawking uh in his in a brief history of time at the end of that book he says something like uh you know, the goal of science is to understand the mind of God. I think he said that. Um, in in any event, it's it's a it's really an important point. And, I, and frankly, George, in reading your book, I was thinking that that's sort of what you were saying. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to that. <laughs> but I was sort of thinking that you were you, that you you sort of were balancing. You were trying to balance this off a little bit between the holistic uh, approach and the mechanistic approach and and we could you know it's sort of the i'm jumping ahead of myself a little bit here but but I think it's it's a very important observation to make that's that our leading scientists at least many of them had had this tendency to be uh whether it's holistic or spiritual or have some have some deeper um thoughts about the world than just a bunch of particles colliding with each other. So. Yeah, and
1: I, I can. We need to be careful. the The, the content, the the theories, and the the, the factual, you know, assemblage of, of science, is a materialist reductionist reductionist view. But the, I, I guess it's 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 subtle. It's it's the the individual scientist is motivated by more than the search for these reductionist rules. It's, we're motivated by. Uh, a sense of the world as an explicable place that we can wrap our minds around; that it's animated by, by comprehensible rules. And those are more metaphysical ideas. So metaphysics informs the practice of physics. That we try to separate those two, but I don't think they really can be separated.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. I think I think that that is um, that's a good observation. I mean, I. I tend to think... I mean, I'm of the mapping... I'm of the mapping um, uh, crowd. In other words, I think that the scientific theories are attempting to map uh, what we see out in the world. And sometimes the map fits, sometimes it doesn't fit. And I think the reductionistic approach is a map, but an incomplete map. But that is... But that is. Uh, you know a, a, to me a very important topic i want to get back to the spooky action here for a minute because what i yes. i like to do is to give is to have you give a couple of examples here that that you think really show how this spooky action at a distance is is more than just gravity i mean there it permeates a lot of a lot of science's leading theories so why don't you tell us about another sort of example of so so folks could see that it's not just gravity but um, it it's, uh, it appears in other areas
1: yeah so the, just to continue the, the story of gravity and then i'll I'll, okay. I'll circle back to what what you're describing here sure. so gravity in our present understanding is no longer thought to be an action at a distance certainly not in the in the sense that newton meant So when I raise my arm, or when the Earth redistributes its mass, or when we orbit around the Sun, or somehow our gravitational field changes, it sends ripples through space, actually of space in a sense, but it sends ripples out, and those ripples reshape the gravitational field and thereby change the gravity that's felt by the Moon, Jupiter, and and all the rest. And that happens at the speed of light, so it's, it's very much a, a local force, it's no longer instantaneous as, as Newton thought. So Newton wasn't strictly wrong, Newton captured the overall effect, but he just didn't capture the, the, the mechanism of propagation. But what's interesting, and, and this was only really appreciated after Einstein died, is that gravity, while eliminating this particular type of action at a distance, it also introduced a type of non-locality into our understanding, certainly of, of that gravitational force. And this, this gravity's, this, this, excuse me, this gravitational non-locality is a bit more subtle. It has to do with how we localize things in the world. So one aspect of of the ideas of locality is not just that there's a a, a speed limit to how interactions can occur through, from one object to the next. But the very fact we can talk about objects. I mean, this is so deep in our worldview that we sometimes forget that we we partition the world into pieces. Okay, there's the glass, there is a book, I'm looking around me now, there's my lamp, there's my fly swatter. There's different things in the world, and we assume that they're independent of one another. That I'm independent, I'm a living thing, I'm a living creature, then I'm independent of other living creatures. I may be dependent on them for sustenance and and oxygen and so forth but ultimately I am an autonomous autonomous being and this is one of the important maybe even the deepest aspects of locality and I think what we see in general relativity and Einstein's theory of gravity is that being undermined that there's a sense in that theory that is difficult to partition the world into pieces Quantities such as energy cannot be ascribed to single points. They have to be ascribed to regions or even ultimately to the entire universe. So it's a very much a holistic view that you begin to see in general relativity theory that you have to think of space-time in, the, in its whole as, as, a, as an entire unit. You, if you, you can try, and you certainly do, divide it and partition it but we miss something when we do that we lose something
0: is that because of the is is that because of the the field it's, it's like it's a it's a gravitational field and so so one movement in one part of the field is affecting the entire field is that is that what is well, that what
1: so, it's actually not so much that okay. because you can you can describe that type of action at a distance with these waves right. gravitational waves or the gravitons if if you want to think in terms of quantum mechanics now this is actually it's even deeper. It's that the okay, let's step back. The waves that I'm talking about, the waves of gravity or just gravitational force in general, reflects the structure of space and time. That when the gravity, when the gravitational field changes, it's really saying that space and time are changing. So how do we locate objects? We locate them with respect to space and time. So when Space and time change. It also changes our ability to locate objects. In fact, it really completely eliminates our ability to ascribe fixed locations to objects, because those locations are are fluid in this theory. There, I think mean, it's a difficult idea to get get your mind around, and it, it's something that troubles physicists even to this day, and it's very hard to understand. But it's almost like uh, the, the the idea of pulling out the rope from underneath you. That's that's what this theory really does. You're standing on the carpet, but you're also saying that the carpet itself is moving around. So yeah. it's you're getting kind of a circle of reasoning here. Yeah, that and that's 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 what leads Einstein and and, and it also Kim comes out with ideas of Ernst Mach that that inspired Einstein that you need to move to a different view of how we locate. Objects in the world, and we have to take a more holistic view of that.
0: Yeah, this is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with George Musser, the author of the new book "Spooky Action at a Distance," and we're talking about gravitational waves and Newton's theory of gravity and how uh, the notion of separation and locality is uh, is is uh, changing. With new ideas and new experiments, you know, I, I guess I have two comments I want to make here, uh, George. One of them mm-hmm. is this notion of of locality, and I think in your book you say something like um, locality and separateness go hand in hand. And this notion of separateness, uh, you, you know, I have to give you credit; it is it is very deep, and it's so basic to just experience and you mentioned um, Kant uh, the famous philosopher that probably one of the smartest guys ever to live and probably one of the least understood and least read um, uh, thinkers mm-hmm. but in any event you know he had this notion that space was a form of the intuition which means that at least the way I interpret it, it which means that you can't have experience without space we can't Uh, walk we can't uh, uh, interact with people we can't pick up the coffee mug unless there is space you don't have an you don't have experience and you know there's a there's a uh, sort of a religious or a spiritual side to this which some people say you know they ask me sometimes well if everybody is if all is one then, uh, then how do we tell each other apart, and and this kind of thing? And I say, well, if we all were one, then it'd be lonely, and so you need other people to interact with. And it's to me, it's it's a, it's it's analogous to saying that we need to have separate objects. You need to have a park, a street, the clouds, in order to experience things. And so separateness is essential, I think, if you're talking about you know what makes experience possible you've got to have that separateness and the, the 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 fact that we are um sort of challenging some of these ideas i think really raises some deep questions about what is what is fundamental to uh to the world we live in uh the the uh I think right now, like, like the horizon problem to me is an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. um, fact where you have opposite ends of the universe sort of in sync, the same temperature, or you have the um, homogeneity of the background radiation. How, how can those things be in contact? They're separate, but somehow they're in contact with each other so, so what what do you think right now is sort of the big non-locality issue confronting science? I mean, you, you, you discuss a lot of them in your book, but which one do you think is is really r- getting the attention of the of the physicists out there?
1: So let me make two comments. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example of non-locality, but first, I wanted to comment on what you said about separateness, and I think this is really one of the great metaphysical. And physical challenges of, of our age is to really see these ideas not as, as, as in opposition. So the world does seem to be holistic. And we see this in gravity theory. We also see it, as I mentioned in a moment, in quantum theory. So in a sense, we need to think of the universe as, in an, as a whole thing, Uh, Even to use the word "thing" is a bit problematic there. So, but sorry, I'm I'm struggling with language here. But to see the universe in its entirety is essential. But we do see the universe divided and partitioned. Right. So we see it separated up, and those are really go hand in hand. They seem complete opposites, but they're they're both are are essential to our understanding of the physical world. So let me let me go go with to what you're asking and maybe this will help illustrate some of these deeper concepts and that is to think about quantum particles quantum entangled particles because that's really the type of action at a distance that people tend to focus on it's the arguably the most mysterious one and it's the one that Einstein called spooky now he used that word spooky in a very particular way because there always had been action at a distance in physics but quantum action at a distance, or quantum entanglement, quantum non-locality, really made it mysterious in a deeper way that led to him calling it actively spooky. And that the basic idea is you can have different objects in the world. Usually we talk about particles, because that's they're easier to handle, but you could do it with actually anything, any two objects. You can cause those objects to interact, or maybe you can create those objects together so that they have a common origin, and they kind of develop or have from birth this connection between them. And the connection means, in this in this context, that they have holistic properties. They have properties that are not ascribable to the individual pieces. You can't even build them up from the individual pieces. And yet, the system in its entirety has them. So... And and in the case of these particles, one such property, and the one that we often talk about, could be sameness. So these particles have the same spin, for example. So spin is one of the properties that they might have, but you might have the same energy. They might have the same momentum. So they have – the system has this quality of sameness. But what's weird is that the individual particles don't have that. So, for instance, suppose we talk about spin. I say that the particles had the same spin. The individual particles don't even have a spin. Spin is not something that is well defined for them because in quantum mechanics that spin will only manifest when you measure the particles. So in advance of the measurement the particles don't have spin. They could be spinning up, they could be spinning down, left, right, any direction. And yet the theory is also telling us that they had the same spin. So this is weird because for instance suppose I say that I'm my shirt is the same color as the wall. So I'm wearing a green shirt. The wall is green. How, what entitles me to, that I, to say that they have the same color? Well, I start with one. I say, hi, I've got a green shirt. I go to the other. It's green. I can then conclude that they're the same color. So I've, I've started from the individual, looked at its properties, compared the individuals, and then concluded that they're the same. That is what does not work for quantum particles.
0: Mm.
1: You cannot say this quantum particle is up, that quantum particle is up, they're both up, therefore they're the same. The image of particles don't have a spin. So this is deeply weird. I mean, it's something that has been discussed now for 80 plus years. It's it's not something that is is easily understood and easily followed, but it seems to be the way the, the world is put together. That the system of particles has holistic qualities collective qualities that the individual pieces do not have.
0: So and what does that this tell is, us? So what is This does... is
1: what we mean by quantum non-locality. Okay.
0: Okay, so what does that what does that tell us? What 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 conclusion would you draw from that feature of quantum mechanics that well, individual
1: This is this what's This is what's really fun because yeah. people have been trying to figure out what it means. <laughs> yeah. for <laughs> ever since 1935. Yeah. Actually, arguably, Einstein really figured this all out in 1909. Yeah, He was way ahead of the game, yeah. and then 30 years later, finally, everyone kind of catches up to him. And this is why I, I have such ad- admiration for Einstein. Um, so they went through the different possible explanations of this, and one by one, they're just ruled out. You try to come up with a mechanistic explanation, you try to come up with an explanation in terms of signaling, some kind of instantaneous communication none of these things work out so the conclusion that, and this is the conclusion of my book really that i draw is that it's really telling us that space and time themselves are somehow derivative that the we take space and time to be a fundamental ingredient of the world it's the stage on which the, the play of the world takes place but actually they are themselves constructed so and they're constructed from things that are not themselves spatial or temporal. They're constructed by some, from some other ingredients altogether. So that when we see these two particles that appear to be distinct, they appear to be in two different locations. At a deeper level, actually, they're probably co-located. They're not separated at all.
0: Well, let me I ask. Okay. Well, let me ask you the big problem. question. Well, well, let, well, let sure. me ask you the big question right now, which is sure. which is a lot of. Uh, the shows I do tend to go in this direction uh, but but this is this is um it, to me the the question of the day in modern science which is that if all this data and that and let's let's say we have the quantum entanglement we have the horizon problem um, we have um, the inflationary big bang we have other other things showing non-locality. If it turns out that the data sh- reveals that there is a holistic underpinning, w- will science accept that or will the mechanistic approach reject reject even the data because of modern science's uh, sort of adherence to the einstein uh viewpoint the the realism the separateness the locality i mean th- th- this to me is the big question that if the data shows holism will science still reject it because it doesn't fit the platform
1: yeah i think i think you're you, you're really touching your finger on something that's important here because i mean we saw that with newton really that uh People had a hard time accepting the kind of holistic view that his, his theory implied. And here's here's what science did then, and I suspect it's going to do it now. It's going to accept it, but deny that it accepts it. <laughs> yeah. <I think> most, <laughs> yeah, that's you good. You hear what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So it's, yeah. Going to, it's going to incorporate this idea into its view because it has to. I mean, this is science purports, and I think it does, seek to explain the material world, the physical world that we live in, and this is a part of that part of that world. It will have to accept it. It's a fact. And people will go in kicking and screaming, but in the end, they'll they'll accept it. But then they will say, "Oh, all along that's what we meant. All along that actually was included in a standard material, materialist, uh, reductionist worldview." And, you know, so what? Let, let them, let them, let them, let them say that. I mean, and we can, we can go on and, 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 and build on, on that theory. So I don't think it really matters what individuals' motivations are. I think what matters in the end is that the ideas will become accepted. We will develop some kind of explanation that's holistic for them and it will be cast in mechanical terms, but it will ultimately still be holistic. So what matters is the content, not, not the rhetoric.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that you, you you do a lot of um this in your book you and this is another reason why I thought it was really um something everybody should pick up and read because you 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 deal with this with the sociological aspects of this issue as well um along the lines that you just mentioned um which which is that you know what what makes a good idea a good idea i mean there there's something in in your book about how bad ideas don't don't live on because they don't generate interest uh but a good idea um or a right idea continues to survive because it 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 inspires and it uh folks to think more and it also it also like produces offspring that pay dividends that ultimately are proven in the in the field And for science, we know that one difference between science and religion is that science is empirical, relies upon data. It's supposed to be self-correcting and all these things where religious is more dogmatic, obviously. But uh, this dogmatism does enter into science as well when we start getting into this topic. It is remarkable to me, George, how many books there are on the strangeness of the scientific theories you know it 's the you know non locality is a big one the fine tuning of the universe is another one, you know black holes and quantum tunneling and all the all these dark matter, dark energy we could go on and on, and a lot of these things are saying um to the scientists to me, hey folks it 's not just particles in motion out here. We are living in, a, in what I, I personally view as a magical—I think Newton was right. <laughs> we do live in a magical universe, it, it, but we tend to listen to the scientists with their white coats on who'd only want to give us the, cons- the strict constructionist, conservative approach. Say, no, this is just me being me. But, but I, I think that we, you have to let some magic into the worldview because I don't care what theory you follow— whether it's reductionism, materialism, spiritualism, or whatever, there's still magic there. I mean, our Richard Dawkins, and then I'll stop here, Richard Dawkins, being one of the most conservative materialists, uh, his, his, one of his last books was something like, you know, The Magic of Evolution or something. I mean, he's, he's, ta- he's talking, he uses the word magic in his title uh, t- to sort of describe how evolution has created a magical world well it's just another way to describe the same place and so anyways this i think is really extremely important right now because of such things as the millennials and the generation changes and and uh who was it that said that science progresses funeral by funeral i mean there is going to be a generational change at some point and i'm not so sure whether the strict materialistic view, view, viewpoint is going to survive. So, so i said a lot there and you probably have some comments, but i just was wondering what what you think about this whole you know movement uh in science and whether you see even publications like scientific american becoming a little bit more say holistic than than uh, reductionistic. So,
1: well, I mean, I can't really speak to the future yeah. Scientific American. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My goal as editor there has always been to track what happens within the scientific community, and the scientific community goes in this direction, then the magazine will follow. So it's right. it's really, we yeah. have to look to the scientific community to see what's going on. And, I mean, again, you see this this theme coming up a lot in, in my own r- remarks and in, in my writings. I think... We, again we tend to separate, we tend to divide into categories pigeonhole, scientist, religion, you know, and all the other categories that we create. But human beings are very we're very complicated. And in the in, in the individual skull you'll have multiple views and multiple perspectives and maybe they could be even contradictory. So the scientists that I know, I mean, I don't know Richard Dawkins personally, um, but the scientists I do know are very thoughtful people. They are, they've are they gone into this profession to seek the truth and to seek understanding of reality. And they, of course, have to come in with and make some kind of provisional assumptions and, and kind of understandings, but they're always willing to revisit them. They're, they're really thoughtful, careful people, and I don't want them seen as or portrayed as dogmatic or or in lockstep on these issues, they, they disagree with each other vehemently and they do incorporate what might be termed at, at times a, a magical view of the world. They, they think at, at root, most of them at least that rational explanation is possible, but they don't see that as depriving the world of, of a, of a sense of mystery that they, they very much are in the profession that they're in because they're entranced and en- enchanted by the, the beauty of the natural world. And if they if they didn't have that, then they would be on Wall Street, or they would yep. be, you know, in business, or or what have you. So they 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 love the world. They they go out and they see solar eclipses, and they're just as moved by it as as any one of us. Or they they see the night sky or the sunset and, and the rain on our on the on the tin roof, and they just are find it so enchanting. Yeah. And and conversely, I don't think the, the religious people are dogmatic at all. I mean, they're thoughtful people. Are, are, are again seeking truth through a different channel than than materialist science does, but a, a valid one as well. And so I, I don't want to separate people into these categories of yeah. of well, one is dogmatic, one's reductionist, and one's holistic. No, we're all in one big you know mob and trying to figure this all out together.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think that that I think that is uh, encouraging. And every and I I think that you having um, you know more direct contact with the scientist than a normal person because of your because of your job. I think I think that is always uh, encouraging that we have a diverse set of scientists and uh, and and thinkers and people taking different approaches. But I I think that and this is a little off topic. But I think that to me, if I had a complaint about the scientific worldview it would be that the scientist separates him or herself from the thing that that they are studying, the separation between the observer and the observed. And that is the separation that we know does not exist based upon quantum theory. Uh, and it's it's to me it it goes into um respecting, honoring uh, taking responsibility uh for the world now i 'm probably making a more of a moral statement here than anything else, but i I hope that as science progresses, we will start viewing ourselves as part of the puzzle uh and I think you allude to that one other one i think a a woman that you um interviewed for your book uh said something like that where where you know we're not studying something that that is outside of us we're studying something that we're a part of and it makes it much more difficult to come up with you know the final answer because because you know where do we fit in to the picture so so that's sort of where i that's sort of where i come down on this which is um you know the ultimate lack of separation, I think is the, is that there is no separation between us and the world. I think we're part of the world. Um, and maybe yeah, I think
1: th- that's a very important, deep principle that you're right. needs to be really taken on in, in the scientific process. but let me just say one thing the When scientists talk about separating the observer from the observed, they're not necessarily or maybe m- maybe not hardly at all saying that that's the way the world is. They're not making a statement about the ontology. I think it's more of an epistemic statement. They're saying that yeah. in order for me to understand this phenomenon, I'm as just a provisional imperfect assumption going to assume that I'm separated from it. Right. I know that's not really true, but I'm just going to do it because I'm a mortal being. I'm a limited I have limited capacity and I need to kind of make this just working assumption to move forward. And then later, I'll go back and fill in. So I think you need to think of science like art or any or any human endeavor as just very incrementalist. You have to just take step by step because that's all we can do. We're limited creatures. And say, well, I'm going to start with this assumption. I'm going to think of myself as removed. Later, I'll I'll be more sophisticated about it. But sometimes the public forgets that more sophisticated later revisiting of the question. And they only remember the opening assumption. But I think very few scientists think, at least, at least the ones I've talked to, think that there's any any deep distinction between the observer and the observed. In fact, Einstein, who's often associated with that view, that was one of his big complaints about some of the interpretations people had of quantum mechanics. That they drew what was, it was called the Heisenberg cut between the observer and the observed. He didn't think there should be any cut like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and then you have the what was it Wheeler that that talked about? Well, who observes the universe and and that and that whole I mean that whole line. But you know, as we're as we're talking here, um, I, I guess th- there's there's two things that I I want to make sure that I ask you before we sure. before we close. And one of them, a lot of people are are probably wondering, which is what is your view uh, on on whether like quantum entanglement has anything to do with parapsychology, <laughs> I know I think I know what your answer is, but I mentioned at the top of the show, and there has been association. You know, well, the quantum, you know, the now now we have a scientific basis for for my for uh, mind reading or clairvoyance or whatever this this remote viewing. What what is your do you think there's any connection, or do you think it's all a bunch of malarkey?
1: No, I, well, I, I don't think there's any connection, but I don't think it's all a bunch of malarkey. So yeah. I take a, a third uh, response to that question. Okay. It's was a completely reasonable, non-crazy, totally anyone who's thinking about it should uh, maybe wonder about such a connection. So it made a lot of sense that there might well be that connection. So it's not at all crazy right. uh, to, to assume that. But I think in with the passage of time, we now see that there's there's in fact no... Such connection. And the, the, that's really for a couple reasons I say that. One is that by the very nature of quantum entanglement, in fact, by the very fact it is holistic, it can't be used to send signals or somehow communicate from one mind or one place to another. So that if you have an entangled particle in your mind and I have the partner of that particle in my mind, we can't really use that to communicate. And Again, I think it has to do with the holism, holism of it. So the, as I described before, the, the two particles might have the property of sameness, even though the individual particles lack it. So in order to fathom that property, we need to measure them holistically. We need to measure them together. And by that very nature, I can't do a communication with that because I have to bring the two particles together, measure them in unison to gauge the holistic property. So I can't measure one on its own and gauge that property. Yeah. Well, and the very active communication is, I well, for how do I communicate? I measure one thing on its own. For instance, I measure the receiver, or the the cell phone, and I get the communication from the other side. So I think the very holism that is interesting here is also what prevents it from being used for any kind of paranormal phenomena.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, let me let me give you my two cents on this. First of all, I do not think that Quantum entanglement uh, is a, a explanatory source for parapsychology. I've had Dean Radin on my show. I think he's written some great books. I think he is underrated as, as a scientist, but I don't think there is. I don't think that it's it's connected. What I do think is that if you if you look objectively at 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 Events at facts at phenomena anecdotally or otherwise there are all, there are multiple signs of holism uh outside of science uh, including such things as synchronicity uh mm-hmm. as as uh remote viewing um, as uh, mind over matter or or um Evolution and, and the origin of origin of different of the same um, living of the, the same species in different parts of the world and whether any of these things ultimately are proven true or not to me we're looking at um, as a at a mosaic and and each of these things such as quantum entanglement is really a sign of the holism it's not it's not like the bedrock we're just looking at it from one angle. It's like an elephant and you're touching the toe and somebody else is touching the trunk. And it's just, the, the picture is coming together that there is a holism. That's, and I probably did not, ex, you know, express that the clearest possible way, but that's the way I look at it. Um, so it's not, it, it just depends which which uh, which one you want to emphasize. Um, the last thing, you know, you end your book with a very, um, interesting in an interesting way and a sort of uh intriguing sentence you say this is your very last sentence of your book you say we may find the most exotic phenomenon in the most prosaic places and that left me wondering what what you were thinking so so uh-huh. When all is said and done here, George, what what did you mean by that, and, and what conclusion, and maybe it's the same answer, what conclusion conclusions are you drawing from the state of affairs with non-locality right now?
1: So I can tell you what I meant and what was kind of specifically behind that remark, but I think the, the, the remark actually opens up other ideas that we can, we can explore as well. So when we talk about space and time being constructions that they're not fundamental to nature. What are they constructions of? Well, in in the usual theoretical approach, there's some kind of atom quote-unquote of space or atom of time, chronon of time, for example. But in order to create space and time, those atoms themselves cannot be situated Within space and time, so where are they they're everywhere they' literally have no position that means they exist every place they exist every time they're because they're beyond our space and time and so in our in our terms, which are spatial temporal because we're spatial temporal creatures they these atoms of space seem to be exist every place they're globalized so if that's the case, then the phenomena that they produce likewise can be seen and glimpsed potentially at least everywhere and anywhere. So when we talk for instance about black holes, black holes, incredibly exotic objects, extreme conditions out in the cosmos. um, And, and that's a laboratory or theoretical laboratory, at least that physicists use to, to examine these kinds of phenomena of gravity and so forth. The, the, Conclusions that are drawn from black holes aren't restricted to black holes. They apply to us as well. There's things we should be able to see all around us, and probably we are seeing them. And this is maybe the the next kind of arc, what I was trying to say. I think those things we're seeing but not appreciating. And it will take a new Einstein to come along and say, aha, this thing that we've been looking at all these years, that we've been taking is just the simplest... Because this dumb view of the universe, this you know brain dead view of the universe, turns out to be indicating something that we're just not appreciating. It's, in other words, the evidence is in front of our noses, and we just aren't aren't seeing it for that. And I think, and often in science, the the greatest advances are not the new discoveries; they're not the new exotic things in the laboratories. It's the new way of thinking right. about what we already know. So Einstein, when he was creating his theories of relativity, didn't do any experiments. He took existing experiments, existing ideas that were already floating around, and interpreted them in a new way. And that's where we were able to make advances in science. Sometimes, of course, you do need new discoveries in the laboratory experiments and the astronomical observations. So I don't want to say that those aren't important, but I do want to say that sometimes the biggest advances come from rethinking what we already know. Yes, yes. That's what I'm trying to say in that in that remark in the book.
0: I see, I see. Well, I think that that I think that is a, a extremely important point, and I think that the what it what it points towards is open mindedness, creativity, uh, not going with the with the um, mainstream, and it takes it it does take. I mean, Einstein. I mean, is it, such an amazing story where you know he did his best work as a patent clerk uh, you know he he wasn't a professor uh, at a big university at the time he made his breakthroughs
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know and so that so he was he was really outside of the mainstream and uh, and frankly I think that uh, that's one of the issues we have right now with um, the power of academia and uh, you know the whole issue with string theory and what uh PhDs are being given and grants are being given i mean it's 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 not easy to work outside of the mainstream but it's but there's a lot of people there and there's a lot of people doing it and i completely agree that it's not going to be a profound new experiment it's going to be you know that's going to change the the world view it's going to be a new way of looking at things so yeah. so so think- so i'm sorry go ahead
1: no, I think what you said about working outside the mainstream is 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 very valid. I mean, a lot of people are trying to do it. and I think if you look, kind of read between the lines of a lot of my stories and anecdotes I give of scientists in my first chapters, my first few chapters, you'll see almost all of them are are fighting that. They're almost always coming from a slightly new novel perspective that isn't fully appreciated by their colleagues, and they have to – to really persevere to gain acceptance
0: yeah it take it does it does take it does take a while, so we have quickly come to the end, and we barely touched the surface of this topic and i was afraid uh-huh. of I was afraid of that because it 's such a rich topic and you know what what we 've seen here is that although spooky action at a distance is not only a really a neat title and a topic uh it and, and it all and not only does it uh, uh Point towards some fascinating experiments uh, in science with quantum entanglement and uh, gravitational waves and um, and the uh, horizon problem. All these things, but it really goes to the heart of what science is and and the heart of our worldview, which is based upon locality. So, so George, now uh, because you know I've done a lot of um, talking and uh you probably haven't had a chance to to um articulate all of your views but is there anything that any any final comments that you'd like to make about about what you think this topic is going to mean for the future of science i mean where where do you come down on what impact uh this spooky action at a distance is ultimately going to have
1: You know, it's a funny thing because we only really know these things in retrospect. Every time we try to project into the future, we, we tend to get it wrong. But I think I can safely say the following, that probably since about the 5th or 6th century B.C., science and physical science certainly has been based on the idea of space and time, that these are the bedrock. And we've now reached a point that we need to move beyond space and time, that we need to think of these grand mysteries of the universe that seem paradoxical because we're viewing them in space and time. We need to move beyond space and time. We need to think of them in a whole new framework that is going to be very difficult to construct because it takes us outside of our comfort zone. But I think it's, it's fun. I think this is going to be a lot of fun in the coming years, intellectual fun, and also will eventually filter into the broader culture and we'll we'll look beyond our, our conventional ways of thinking into whole new ways.
0: Yeah, I think that is I think that's very promising and I agree with you that I think the not only the American public is ready for something new, but I think science science is, is ready for something new. I mean I in my job I do uh, some technical work and I, I am an environmental lawyer and I I often get asked well, um, what should we tell the regulators or the government about what we found? And I, and I typically say, I say, we will follow the data. We will go where the data goes. And I think that that is what science is supposed to do. Uh, that's, that's the ideal, which is to go where the evidence leads. And I think that this non-locality evidence is leading towards something, uh, an, uh, something more holistic, something on a grander scale. And I, I also strongly believe that this is going to be a good thing in, in the in the grand scheme of things. So once again, George, thank you very much. Uh, your uh, George's book, as I mentioned, is called "Spooky Action at a Distance," and it is a very good read. It's it's uh, stimulating and it's also educational. I highly recommend it. Uh, George, thank you very much for your time, and uh, it was, it's been great talking to you.
1: Likewise, it's really been fun. Thanks.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.